I uh, heard a, a kind of a humorous story this past week, at least it struck me as uh, funny, about a, a couple recently moved into a retirement home that had a whirlwind rom- romance. They uh, met, were engaged, and married in a period of about three weeks. And uh, since they were in their 80s, the newspaper office thought that would be worthy of, uh, of an article, and so they, they sent a newspaper reporter around to talk to this couple. And they asked the man uh, how, this, uh, how this romance came about, and he said, well, the, the first day I went into the retirement home, and I was in the lobby, and, uh, and this woman came up to me and, and stuck her finger under my nose and said, you look just like my third husband. And he said, well, that's very interesting. How many husbands have you had? She said, two. (laughs) I suppose the the, uh, moral of that story, if there is one, is that uh, when time is short, you don't waste time. You get right uh, to it. And I think that's the theme of the, uh, of the text that we want to look at this morning. Time is uh, fleeting. It's passing. And uh, we need to get down to doing the main things. As Joe Aldrich puts it, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, it, it grieves me somewhat that we spend so much time majoring on the minors, doing things that really don't matter a great deal. So much of the church is preoccupied with settling doctrinal differences, differences that uh, that cause division but really don't make a great deal of difference. They don't make us more like the Lord. They don't make us more effective in, in, in reaching others. They're, they're minor things. Concerns me that the church is divided up over ecclesiology, that is how the church is to be ruled and regulated, whether we should have a democratic form of church government or an eldership form of government or what particular polity we, we will choose. That, in my mind, is a, a very minor issue. It concerns me that we spend so much time and the church is so greatly divided over eschatology, that is, whether the Lord will come back before or during or after the tribulation or whether the uh, God has some yet future plan for Israel or whether the church today is is Israel. I I think we ought to make up our minds about those issues. I think we ought to be good students of of Scripture and come to our own conclusions, but uh, these shouldn't. These issues shouldn't divide us. Modes of baptism and communion, methods of evangelism and follow-up, Calvinism, Arminianism, these are issues that, sad to say, have divided the church almost from the very beginning and have diverted our attention away from the main things. As Dr. Aldrich says, we've, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing and not get sidetracked. I'm not saying we shouldn't decide what we believe about these issues, but we shouldn't let them divide us. And we shouldn't let them divert us. There are far greater issues at stake, and that's what this text is about this morning. Uh, John 3 is the passage, beginning with verse 22. Now, the, the, the first uh, two verses in this, uh, in this paragraph, verses 22 and 23, and actually verse 24, which is parenthetical, give us the setting for what follows. And uh, John introduces this, uh, this brief statement of, 
of the setting with uh, the little phrase, after these things, which I have come to believe is a marker in the, in the Gospel of John. It's one of the ways in which the, the author divides the book and, and shows us what the units of thought are. The prior unit of thought is the cleansing of the temple and the conversation with Nicodemus. Now he moves on to another matter, which uh, will occupy us in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now that's not too important this morning, but but next week when we talk about the woman at the well, it's very important because this passage leads into that one. It's all part of the same unit of, of thought. John says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, that is the countryside, and there he was spending time with them, with his disciples, and baptizing. Jesus left uh, Jerusalem, the capital city, moved out into the countryside, and uh, he began to carry out an itinerating ministry there, moving through the little villages and out through the countryside, gathering a hearing and teaching, and his disciples were baptizing. We know from chapter 4 that Jesus himself didn't baptize, but he was overseeing the ministry of his disciples. John says he spent a, a, a considerable of, uh, amount of time doing that, probably six months from May until December of A.D. 27. He was preaching the kingdom of God, and he, and he was baptizing. Now, I, for myself, I don't see any real difference between Jesus' baptism and John's. Remember, we talked a number of weeks ago about John's baptism and I told you that as far as we know, we're not sure, this is one of those fuzzy areas in history, but as far as we know, the Jews baptized only Gentiles. They didn't baptize other Jews. When a, when a Gentile wanted to come into the community, wanted to become a, a Jew, a, a proselyte, as, as we call them, wanted to be a part of the people of God, they were baptized as a sign of that identification, and baptism was a purification rite. It was a sign of cleansing them from their Gentileness, washing away their sin, so they could come into the community of God. Now, the thing that made John the Baptist's ministry unique is that he was saying to Jews, you Jews aren't even Jews. Ethnically, you may be Jews, but you're not a part of the people of God. You need to be baptized, and that's what made him sit up and, and take notice. Now, I think Jesus was simply carrying on the same ministry. He was working with Jews. He was baptizing them. He was saying, you, you folks who think of yourselves as Jews, as part of this historic line that goes all the way back to Abraham, aren't Jews? You need to repent of your indifference to God, and, and you need to, to love him and center on him and, and live for his kingdom and, and be a part of this believing remnant, the hardcore of faith within Israel. And then his disciples were baptizing as a sign of that recommitment of their lives. And uh, we know from the rest of the account that, that, that people were flocking to Jesus. Huge crowds were beginning to, to follow him. Now, he was down in the south, in Judea, southern part of the land of Israel. On the other hand, John was baptizing, according to verse 23, in Anon, near Salim, which was up north, right on the border between Samaria and, and Galilee, about 50 miles north of the Dead Sea, along the Jordan River. He'd been working his way upstream preaching and baptizing as he went. Now he's up in the north, for all practical purposes, in Galilee, Jesus in the south. Both of them were preaching. Both were baptizing. Both had uh, large crowds coming to them. So the stage is set for John's, uh, John's account. Verse 25. There arose, therefore, 
because of the two baptisms, Jesus in the south, John in the north, there arose therefore a discussion. The, the, uh, the translation of the New American Standard is way too soft. If you have an NIV, it translates debate. Argument would be better. Uh, they were really, they were steamed up. This, this was quite a discussion. There was a lot of heat in this, in this debate. They were angry. There was an argument going on on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, uh, this is a shot in the dark because John's account is very terse. But I think the debate was not over purification per se, just the fact of of ritual cleansing. But it had to do with the two baptisms. And I think that's true because of, of John's therefore and because of what follows, as we'll see in a moment. I think this is what happened. I think this uh, Jew was listening to John preach. And uh, after the preaching, John's disciples would do what we used to do when I was working with students. Someone would be up front uh, presenting the gospel. And then afterwards, individual students would, would talk to people in the group and ask them what they thought and, and talk to them about spiritual things if they were interested. I think that's what was going on. And some of John's disciples came in contact with, with a Jew who was standing on in the crowd listening to John preach. And they said, what do you think? And, and this young man said, and I'm speculating, but I, this young man said, or this man, we don't even know that he's young, said, uh, well, uh, I like what John has to say. has the ring of truth about it. My, he's awfully austere in, in that, in that you know, the way he dresses and his emphasis upon the judgment of God. But it makes a lot of sense. I think he's, he's right. But listen, have you heard Jesus preach? Oh, you ought to go down to Judea and listen to Jesus preach. I mean, the man seems to... It's almost as though he's been reading my mail. He knows what's in my heart. He understands me better than anyone. He really speaks to the great issues of of life. And I think I'm going to join his group. And and I I think these, these disciples of John were miffed. I think so because of what they reported to John. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. This is two very interesting things. The first is that this fellow used to be your disciple. He was an underling. Remember, Jesus came to you and he was baptized by you. And he listened to you for several months. He's one of your disciples. And the disciple's not greater than his master, is he? And, and secondly, you're the one who got him started in this ministry. You're the one who pointed him out to the crowd. He was, he was unknown until you said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how his ministry began. Most of you uh, know Luis Palau. Uh, Luis Palau used to be a, a bank teller in Argentina. Uh, Luis today is probably one of the best-known evangelists in the world, and certainly in the third world, one of the most effective evangelists. He, he may be the heir apparent to Billy Graham. He's known everywhere. Tremendously fruitful, effective ministry. Started out as a bank teller in Argentina. Ray Steadman discovered him down there. Brought him up to Peninsula Bible Church, and, and for a year... He was a pastoral intern at at, at PBC, where I was on the staff. Luis Palau back then was known to us as Louis Palui, (laughs) the Latin lover. Ray Ray Steadman used to preach 
And if you ever heard Ray preach, you know, he's very conversational, very low-key. And uh, Luis used to translate for him. I traveled with him a little bit in, in Mexico and listened to this go on. And, and it was hilarious. Ray, Ray would say a few words in that kind of toned-down way he has of talking. And Luis would jump up and down and wave his arms. And he'd go on and on and on for about two minutes. And we would just die laughing at the guy. Just fall out of the chair laughing. He was a character. He was Louis Pelui to us. But today the whole world, the whole third world is coming to Luis. And we could go to Ray Stebbin and say, hey, Ray, don't, don't you remember Louis? Don't you remember how, how inept he was in the beginning and what a funny guy he was to have around? You made him what he is today. He got his start because you saw some promise in him. And now the whole world's coming after And who knows about you? You're not written up in Christianity today. You're not known all over the world like Louis. Doesn't that bother you? Ray would say no, as John the Baptist did. But that's the sort of thing that's happening here. Here is one of John the Baptist's disciple who, disciples who now is in the spotlight. He's getting the applause. And, and John is not, and John's disciples were bothered about that. And the thing that really bothered them is that the crowds were going to Jesus. That was the rub. All, he says, are going to you. Because all of us, as Lucy says, you know, we, winning is not everything. Winning big is. And, and one way to win big is to win the numbers game. If some is good, more is better, and too many is just right. And, and that's the sign of success when you have a whole bunch of people coming to hear, hear you preach. And they're saying, they're all going to hear him. They're not, they're not coming to you anymore. And that was the problem. What it really boiled down to was, was a bit of envy. And, and a competitive spirit. We all have it. We love to win. But see, they were competing for the numbers. John sets them right. He states the principle that forever relieves us of a competitive spirit and relieves us of turmoil in our hearts when, when people leave our ministry and start going someplace else. No one likes to hear that the people are leaving you and going to some other place to listen to them. But John gives us a principle that, that takes the sting out of that sort of thing and, and sets us at rest. He says in verse 27, Jesus, uh, John answered and said, this is John the Baptist now, not John the Evangelist. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Are, are people in your group going to some other Bible study? Is your Bible study getting smaller and someone else is getting bigger? Is someone else receiving the praise that, that you should be getting? Did you lead someone to Christ and now they're outstripping you in terms of fruitfulness and effectiveness in the body of Christ. Does that bother you? Well, it really shouldn't if we understand this principle. A man or a woman can receive nothing unless it's given. It's a gift, pure and simple. It's a gift. And if someone else's ministry is being enriched and blessed and growing, all we can say is praise the Lord. It's a gift to that person. No one has anything unless he's received it. Now, Paul says almost the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. It would, it would be good for us to look at that passage. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse uh, 4. The problem in Corinth was uh, that of centering on men. Apollos, uh, 
brilliant young teacher from Alexandria being pitted against Paul, ex-rabbi who had planted the church in, in Corinth. The people in Corinth were, were imbued with the Greek classical spirit that what really matters is a man's power and his wisdom, that is, power of personality and intelligence and knowledge. Those are the important commodities. That's what you look for in someone to follow. And they were centering around these people, building their, their lives on them. Some were saying, as, as Paul says, I am of Paul. Paul had come in and planted the church. He was a pioneer. Went into his, his ministry was to go to places where Christians had never gone and preach the gospel and plant, the, uh, plant a church there. He'd gone to Corinth and planted the church. And some people had been led to Christ by Paul. So they were saying, I'm Paul's man. I follow Paul. And another, I am of Apollos, because they were, had been greatly helped by Apollos' teaching. I am of Apollos. We, we would say today, I am of John MacArthur. I am of Chuck Swindoll. Or I am of Bill Gothard. Or anybody. Joe Fudge. Fluella Mae Gluckenheimer. Sadie Glutz. Doesn't matter. Someone that we center our lives upon because they seem to have power and wisdom. Listen to what Paul says. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave. Now, NIV has opportunity in here, but if you notice, it's in italics. So it doesn't occur in the text. It's not emphasized. It's supplied by the translators. What Paul says is, is that these men are simply servants, even as the Lord gave to each one. What have you that you have not received? A man can, can do nothing unless it's received. has to be given. Where did Paul's effectiveness come from? God gave it to him. Where did Apollos' effectiveness come from? God gave it to him. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered. But it's God who causes growth. Only God can make a tree. Planting and watering are, are human endeavors. Anyone can do that. Growth is supernatural. That's what he's saying. If the church is growing, if the ministry of these men is expanding, if they're becoming more and more fruitful and effective, it's because God has given them an opportunity. That's all it is. It's not the man. It's not his wisdom. It's not his personality. It's not his background. It's God. It's God who causes the growth. So then... Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now, he's not saying they're nothing in terms of relationship to him, but in terms of ministry, they don't matter. They're simply servants. And he does go on to say that uh, now he who plants and he who waters are one. That is, Paul says, Apollos and I are, are united in this ministry. We're, we're not in competition. We're, we're complementary to one another. And each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God won't forget. He's not saying you men are nothing. He's going to remember, but in terms of the kind of ministry they have, where they will be placed, how quickly that ministry will grow, to what size it becomes, the direction it goes, that's God's prerogative. He will do that, and he will cause the growth. And these men are expendable. They can be moved here, there, elsewhere, at God's will. And if God blesses them, it's a gift. That's all it is. Now, I think that's precisely what John is saying when he says a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Now, he elaborates in verse 28. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am the one sent. The gift that was given to Christ was that of the office of Messiah. That was God's will for him. God's will for John was to be the one sent. He's thinking of the prophet Malachi in the passage we've talked about from time to time, where Malachi designates Elijah as the one sent ahead of the Lord to prepare the way for him. He picks up that term from the book of Malachi, applies it to himself. Actually, he makes a proper noun out of it. He says, Jesus is the Messiah. I'm the one sent. Let's keep it straight. This is his job. This is my job. This is my gift. This is his gift. This is what I was given to do. This is what he was given to do. Now, he uses what I think is a very helpful analogy to explain this matter of gift and calling and office and responsibility. And it's that of of a wedding. Verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, who gets the bride in a wedding? The bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. In other words, what makes the friend happy is to see the the bride and groom get hitched. That's his function, is is to pull the bride and groom together, to see that the wedding comes off. That's his only job. He's not there to receive praise. He's not there to get the bride. Now, what, what kind of wedding would it be if uh, you know, the bride comes down the, the aisle on the arm of her father? And uh, I've had all sorts of funny things happen to me in weddings. I've had people faint. I've had people forget their lines. I've had them forget the ring and, and forget to show up and all sorts of strange things. But I've never had this happen to me. But suppose it happens. Down the aisle comes the comes the, the, the bride on the arm of her father and uh, the, the minister says who gives this woman to be married to this man and the father of the bride says her mother and I do and all of a sudden the best man walks up and offers his arm and he commandeers the bride and he stands there in front waiting for you to say something say, hey no no you go over there it's the groom that gets the bride you don't get the bride that's not your job and then you go to the reception afterward and uh, the best man dances with the uh, with the bride, and he won't even let the groom have any time with her, and, and uh, he cuts the cake with the bride, and, and uh, he's in the spotlight the whole time. You, you, this, this man doesn't understand the function of the friend. He, you know, he, he thinks he is the best man. He's got it all confused. <laughs> By the way, that's an interesting misnomer, isn't it? We call him the best man, so I guess the bride gets second best or something. But friend is the term that... that that John uses, that's a better term. He, he's just there to assist, that's all. He's there to, to get the bride and groom together, to get the bride to fall into the groom's arms. That's his only purpose. And if he tries to get into the spotlight and receive the praise, he's missed the whole point. Now you see what John is saying? Jesus is the groom. All these people that are coming to him are the bride. It's a strong metaphor used all through the Old Testament. We're going to see it again next week in chapter 4, the story of the woman at, at the well. That's why I think these two units go together. Jesus is the, is the groom. The people coming to him are the bride. We are the bride of Christ. A metaphor that Paul picks up in his writings. John says, I don't want to get in the way. 
I don't want the spotlight on me. The only thing I want to do is get the bride and groom together. I don't want the bride to talk about me, and I don't want to talk about the bride. That's not my purpose. I'm just here to help the bride and groom form a union. Now, you see what he's saying? John says, I'm glad that people are coming to Jesus. That causes me tremendous joy. I'm not jealous. I'm not bitter. I'm not resentful. I'm not hurt because they're going to Him. I'm just so happy that they're being drawn to Him, which is the way we ought to look at ministry. Who cares who gets the credit? Who cares who gets the people? The goal of our ministry is not to get into the spotlight. It's to get people into union with Jesus Christ. And if nobody ever hears of us again, it's all right. And that's why John says, and this is his bottom line, and it ought to be ours as well. He must increase, but I must decrease. My job, he says, is just to see that the wedding comes off. It's to introduce, introduce the bride to the groom. And nothing gives me greater joy than to hear the groom call for the bride and see the bride respond. As John, the evangelist, says later in, in one of his little books in Third John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. He's talking about his spiritual children, that they're walking with the Lord Jesus. That ought to be our joy. Not that we are receiving any, any honor or praise for it, but that people we've ministered to have been united to Christ and are walking with him. He must increase. I must decrease. We're expendable in terms of ministry. Not in terms of our relationship to God. He doesn't forget us. He doesn't overlook us. But in terms of our ministry, God has the right to put us where He wants us to, to be, move us around, bless us in one situation, bless someone else in another situation. It's all right. We can't be jealous. He must increase. We must decrease. Now, I, I think what follows uh, here in verses 31 to the end of the chapter is John the Evangelist's uh, commentary, the author's commentary. It's his uh, language, and it's his, uh, his practice. You know from last week that John begins to comment on Jesus and Nicodemus' conversation in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's, that's the author's comment. That's not Jesus' words to Nicodemus. And I think that's what we have in verse 31. These are not John the Baptist's words. This, this, is, G, this is John, the author of the book the writer of the gospel, his commentary on John the Baptist's words. And he picks up this idea, he must increase. And I think this is simply an elaboration or an explanation of why Jesus must have the preeminence. As Paul puts it, in him, he has all the preeminence. You see. And, and, and that's what John has said, he must increase. And John, uh, the evangelist, elaborates on that. The reason he must have the, uh, the eminent place is that he comes from above. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is, is above all. In other words, uh, there's no one like Jesus. He's unique. He's the ultimate man. He's above all of us. He's due honor, praise, and glory. He's worthy of it. He's the ultimate man. The rest of us, he's going to say, are earthbound. He's not. He came from heaven. 
That makes him superior. There's no one like him. As a friend of mine is fond of saying, men will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. He never will. He's the ultimate man. And secondly, he has the ultimate truth. He, what he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. That is, uh, of mankind. Uh, it's true of mankind in general, that they don't receive his witness. But, verse 33, he who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Uh, the Spirit is the uh, means of revelation, the agent through which revelation is made. And uh, what John is saying is that for two reasons, Jesus has the last word. Not only was he in heaven, where he had first-hand knowledge of God, he was face-to-face with God, and therefore he comes giving us pure truth, undiluted truth, but he, he has been given the Spirit without measure. No, no end to the Spirit that's given to him. So he is absolutely dependable. He always tells us the truth. He's the last man, and he has the last word on every subject. He understands us as no one else does. As I've said before, he wrote the manual that goes with man and with woman. This is the book that explains what we're like. No one else understands us. Brian was commenting last week on the expression at the end of chapter 2, John chapter 2. Jesus didn't commit himself to any man. But chapter 3 starts out, but there was a man, Nicodemus. Jesus knew the heart. He understood the man. He understands you and me. Because no one else can understand us. And he has the last word on our lives. Uh, Very often people will ask me, what do you think of counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists and folks like that? Should we go to them for help? And I said, sure. I said that... Those are gifted men and women within the body of Christ. But the, you want to ask them. You know, the first time you go in to talk to them, sit down and, and ask them, what do you think about Jesus? And what do you think about his words? And if they discount what Jesus says about man, I don't care what their other credentials are, I say the thing to say very politely is, well, well excuse me, I don't think I need to waste your time anymore. I think I'm going to go someplace else. Because everybody else is earthbound. Jesus came from heaven, and he understands us. And, and so I want to go to a counselor who uses the Word of God to correct his psychology, not the other, the other way around. Now, it's not that, that the Word of God says everything that needs to be said about our marriage. There, there's truth outside Scripture that can help us in our marriages. Carolyn and I have been reading Larry Crabb's very helpful book, The Marriage Builder, and we've learned a lot about communicating. These are, not, these are things that are not found in Scripture, but Larry Crabb is a Christian who believes that Jesus has the last word, and he lets Jesus correct his psychology, not the other way around. So, so you see, whoever we go to needs to be someone who has an ear for what Jesus has to say, because he, he has the ultimate word. He's the last man, and he has the last word. And furthermore, as John tells us, he has ultimate authority. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He's the only one who has power to change us. Now, see, I'm, I, I'm one, of, one of John's earthbound men. I'm not the ultimate man. Carolyn can tell you that. Everybody that knows me. I'm not the last word in men. And I don't have ultimate truth. And I don't have any power to change anyone. But Jesus does. And that's why He's preeminent. And that's why He ought to be exalted. And that's why we ought not to exalt any man. There's no man like Jesus. There's no woman like Jesus. 
John says, he must increase. I must decrease. Now, there's another reason why we need to make Jesus the main thing, and it's because the consequences of believing or rejecting him are cosmic. The, the real issue in life is what a person thinks about Jesus. Listen to this. This is John's commentary. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John doesn't equivocate. doesn't waffle. He who believes on the Son of God has eternal life. Not hopes to have it, not works for it, but he has it. He who does not obey or submit to the Son, which gives us an idea of what belief is. It's more than mere mental uh, apprehension of the facts about Jesus, but it's a, it's a submitting of our heart to him as, as Savior and Lord. He who does not submit to the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And God's wrath is his necessary, righteous reaction to sin. And he has no option but, but to express his wrath toward those that have rejected the Son. Now, that's, that's a hard line. We, you know, we don't like to hear that, but, but it's there. I didn't say that. An inspired apostle said that. That the ultimate issue in life is what you think about Jesus. If you believe in Him and if you submit to Him, you have eternal life, even if you're struggling and failing and falling down and sinning and having a hard time of it. If you've submitted your heart to Him, you have eternal life. And if you've never done that, no matter how good you are, the wrath of God abides upon you. It's a present tense verb. Not talking about life in the hereafter, but wrath right now. That's where the dullness and the emptiness and the hurt and the pain and the depression and the, and, and the, and the meaningless of life come from. Those are all manifestations of the wrath of God. Life, just the life goes out of life. So you see what he's saying? That is the great issue in life, whether people believe in Jesus or they don't. And that's why we exalt him, and that's what we focus on, is people coming to know Jesus Christ. The world is divided into two kinds of people, those that believe in Jesus and those that don't, and fundamentally there are really no other kinds of people. The world is not divided into those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, and those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture. The world is not divided into those that believe that God has still a purpose for Israel and those who believe that, the Israel, that Israel is the church today. It's not divided into those who baptize by immersion and those who baptize by, uh, by uh, effusion or sprinkling or some other method. It's not divided into Calvinists and Arminians. Those, those are issues that you need to think through. Those are not the cosmic issues of life, and we must not let them divide us from one another. We must center on the main thing, and the main thing is our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we think about Him? Those doctrines that have to do with Him are important, and those are the ones that we need to stress. John in his little epistle, 1 John, rings the changes on this matter of the Incarnation. If you don't believe... That Jesus is God himself, come to earth. He said, you have called God a liar. It's just that simple. That's the real issue. Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is he God himself on earth or is he not? And if we believe that and submit to him, we have life. And if we don't, 
then we experience the wrath of God. And that's what we need to center on. Everything else is basically irrelevant. Now, I know that a lot of you don't agree with me. But I think what I'm saying, I'm saying on good authority. Because of the way this passage, the sort of conclusion that this passage leads us to. The only really cosmic issue is what do you think of Jesus? Who is he? So the time is short. I don't don't know how much time we have. I don't know how much time I have. I know we have less time than we had when I started this message. You know, my, my father is celebrating his 90th birthday this July. And he still is just strong as a bull. And if I live that long, uh, I've got, uh, what have I got, 37 years. By the way, the rumor is out that I'm 68. I am not 68. <laughs> I may look like I'm 68, but I'm not. I'm 53. Maybe I have 37 years. Or by reason of strength, I may live to be 100. What does that give me? 40 some odd years. That's not much time. Either I'm going to die or the Lord's going to come back within the next 40 to 50 years. That I'm sure of. Don't have a lot of time. None of us have a lot of time. What are we spending our time doing? Sitting around splitting doctrinal hairs, debating issues that don't matter, dividing up the church over things that are basically irrelevant. Or are we getting about the business of exalting Christ, being the friend of the groom, introducing people to them, bringing about a union of of people with our Lord Jesus, and then stepping back and letting Him have the glory? That's the real issue. I was talking to Dan Brown this week about this passage, and uh, we were just reflecting on the truth of it as it applies to uh, Dan and Monica. As you know, they went to a Middle East uh, country to uh, to win Muslims to Christ, and they were in a country where they were prohibited, really, from evangelizing openly. Missionaries have been barred from that country, and so they went in there just to be friends, just to love people and uh, befriend them, just as we do here in the States. And, Lead them to Christ. They took a team, four couples, three, uh, two single uh, men, a couple of single women. They located there as graduate students and teachers and engineers, and contributing as they could to the uh, to the people there in that country, and then seeking opportunities to be friends and and lead them to Christ. They had remarkable results. They led people uh, to Christ, and that's almost unheard of in Muslim countries. And uh, some of the other mission organizations that have been there for years came to, to Dan and Monica, and they said, you know, I, we don't understand this. Why, why, is, why is this happening to you? We've been here slugging it out for years. We haven't seen the results that you, you have. And all Dan and Monica would do is say, well, it, this has been given to us. It's a ministry. It's been given to us. And you know what happened? Some weeks later, the secret service came at night, and Gathered up most of the team, put them in prison. Three of the men spent uh, several weeks in prison, and finally the team was deported out of the country. And and they have no longer they don't they don't have an opportunity any longer to to minister to these people. And some people thought that's a terrible tragedy. Well, you see, God has the right to do as He pleases with those that are His. He had the right to leave them there and bless them and enrich their ministry and then take them away. He's got some other plan for that country. We don't know what it is. Christians are there. Many of them are going on with Christ. The church is in the process of being formed in that country, and perhaps it's through that church that the rest of the country will be will be one. Well, Dan and Monica don't have the opportunity to reap that harvest and, and to be written up in mission magazines as the ones who accomplished something that no one had ever accomplished in, a, in an Islamic country before. But it doesn't matter, see? It doesn't matter. 
He must increase. They must decrease. God has the right to do with us as he pleases. He has the right to take us through hard times because he may want to show the world what what it means to have, have Christ as our resource when things are really tough. He may put you through a very difficult marriage. He may put you through health problems. You may go through financial disasters. He doesn't promise an easy road. What he does want us to do is just focus on the main thing. Just keep the main thing the main thing. Just keep walking along with the Lord, growing with him, getting to know him, reproducing his character in the world, and telling people about the groom. That's what they're looking for, as we'll see next week. Everybody's looking for the right kind of man. And Jesus is that man. And when we bring people into union with him, we've done our job. doesn't matter what happens to us or where he puts us or what kind of appreciation he's given us. He must increase. We must decrease. Let's pray. It's a very humbling concept, Lord, but we know it's true. Forgive us for wanting to be in the center ring, for wanting to be seen and known and, and recognized. 